Hello, Mainly fans. Welcome to Mainly History, your go-to podcast for conversations about mostly Maine and Mainly History. I'm your host, Ian Saxe. Today's show is about an important topic that almost no one knows much about, the relationship between indigenous nations, federal and state law. This being Mainly History, the focus of this conversation was the Penobscot and other Maine Indians and their legal relationships to the Pine Tree State and the U.S. In my own scholarship, I've written about the Penobscot and other Wabanaki people's systems of property during the colonial period and how they responded to the arrival of English people. Today's guest is an authority on contemporary issues of indigenous sovereignty, in other words, self-government, environmental resource management, and the law. Together, we dove headlong into case law and highlights of some of the truly landmark cases that have involved Maine Indians in the last 50 years, and what those have meant not only for everyone living in Maine, but across the United States. This being a history podcast, we got into questions about the historical context behind earlier cases, how the position of the U.S. and state governments toward indigenous nations changed over time, and what all of this means in the 21st century. I tried not to lose you as we got into the weeds at a few points. If we did, I hope you respond like any good judge on Law & Order who witnesses shenanigans in the courtroom. I'll allow it. Let's do this. My guest today is Darren Ranko, Professor of Anthropology and Director of Native American Research at the University of Maine. Darren, welcome to Mainly History. Thanks, Ian. Really great pleasure to be joining you today. It is great to have you. Now, you wear more hats than many uh, friends of the show. So if I, if I may ask you, since you are not a historian, what are your particular fields of expertise that you're bringing with us today? Great, thanks for the question, Ian. So you mentioned I have a PhD in anthropology, social anthropology. Um, I also have a law degree in uh, environmental law. It's a master's degree, it's not a JD, from Vermont Law School. And my research has been very much oriented around the legal and political engagements that we as Wabanaki people have had related to protecting our environments. So, you know, my research started out looking at the impacts of pollution on our subsistence um, and sort of how that was being dealt with in a political and legal sense in the 1990s. And then in the last decade, I've been, you know, kind of expanding that scope in terms of beyond pollution and beyond environmental justice issues towards issues of access and engagement, management of things like invasive species, for example, the emerald ash borer, and now more recently related to topics of climate change adaptation policy, and also issues related to land access through land trusts and conservation groups. So, yeah, I mean, I think. What ties all that together is my real consistent engagement 
around Wabanaki attempts at building upon and maintaining relationships and stewardship over uh, resources and territories. And I think the colonial apparatus that sort of resists those uh, claimings. Great. To get a bit more clarity, so you're a member of the Penobscot Nation of the Wabanaki people, yes? Correct. Yeah. So I'm I'm a Penobscot Nation citizen. I also am on the Penobscot uh, Tribal Rights Resources and Protection Board, which is a committee uh, at the Penobscot Nation that um, concerns itself with intellectual property issues and the protecting of our cultural heritage um, across uh, uh, our territory and beyond. Um, I'm also one of the Penobscot Nation representatives to the Maine Indian Tribal State Commission, which is a, an entity created in the um, Maine Indian Claims Settlement Act of 1980 to meant to hear disputes. So far, it hasn't solved a lot of disputes. It hasn't been kind of given that kind of kind of, but it, it is it has been an influential entity for the frameworks that, that you've seen more recently related to fixing the Settlement Act uh, in terms of protecting and and recognizing tribal sovereignty. It has had a really important role there. Great. And we'll be be getting to the the Settlement Act. Uh, For our out-of-state listeners, if you could just clarify, where in the state of Maine is the Penobscot Nation located? The Penobscot Nation, are the residential part of our reservation is Indian Island, um, which is an island in the middle of the Penobscot River, uh, about 10 miles uh, upriver, pretty much uh, north of Bangor, Maine. And our territory is, is traditionally associated with the Penobscot River watershed up and down the river um, from the coast all the way up through the east and west branches and into the Katahdin and and Moosehead regions. So that's in terms of our traditional territory, our contemporary land holdings exist also primarily in the Penobscot River watershed, all the islands in the the river uh, from Indian Island upstream, and then some land holdings um, in Western Maine as well. Oh, in Western Maine as well. Yeah, part of the Settlement Act. So oh, gotcha. Okay. Sort of that. Yeah. Right. So they're both um, fee and trust lands in in the uh, western part of the state. Excellent. And so we will be returning to those land as well as water rights shortly. And so this is something that very few Americans usually know much about precisely. But what is the Penobscots' formal relationship to the state of Maine? Uh, and the United States, uh, as acknowledged in U.S. law? It sounds like an easy question to answer, (laughs) but but I I will say it's gone through part of this, which is great for your audience, you know, part of answering this question is sort of, you know, when when you ask this question and what the answer will be, of course. And Um, so I guess I meant today now. Today, right. (laughs) Right. Today, you know, the the idea, of course, is that we are a a federally recognized sovereign uh, Indian nation. And that is um, a pretty firm kind of legal status that the United States considers um, the Penobscot Nation as a a nation with um, particular, you know, rights, duties, powers, and this is all firmed up in, I believe, twenty-five USC, the Federal Indian Law Standards of like what 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 is the sovereign status of of federally recognized tribes? It's, you know, some somewhere between the the sovereignty of a state 
um, with uh, maybe even a little bit more in some areas and a little bit less in some other areas. And the state of Maine, on the other hand, I think sees well, I think acknowledges the fact that we are federally recognized and, and are therefore part of a, um, a federal system. The state of Maine would, would definitely sort of resist the notion of us as being a, a sovereign uh, Indian nation and has maintained that position for, for quite some time, uh, despite legal cases that call us out and recognize our sovereignty uh, over vast periods of time. And as a practical matter, what does it mean for an indigenous nation to have federal recognition as a sovereign nation? <clears throat> you know, part of it is, you know, the, the idea of tre- that sort of defines um, federal recognition is driven by the idea that the, the federal government has a particular responsibility politically and, and legally based around not only treaties, but um, other agreements that it's a, you know, it's, it's all through federal Indian law, through legislation passed by U.S. Congress, executive orders assigned by presidents over the last couple hundred years, that there is a sort of unique relationship and that the, the sovereignty is one that is retained and recognized by the federal government. So a lot of that is driven through the idea of treaty, but also the incorporation and the beginnings and imaginings of federal Indian law, starting with, you know, in the 1820s and 30s with the Marshall cases uh, at at the Supreme Court level, which really start to firm up and recognize uh, tribal sovereignty as part of this uh, uh, federal system of sovereigns, which includes states, tribes, and the federal government. As far as the official position of the Penobscot Nation is concerned, uh, is there any is there any difference in there uh, how the sort of official Penobscot statement would go um, from whatever is, is currently acknowledged in U.S. law? You know, I think that there's always a tension there, and uh, there's no. I'm not going <laughs> to speak to an official position. I think you know one of the 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 Sorry, operation. asking you as a scholar, not as like a politician. Of course, no, that's okay. Yeah, yeah, no, of course. Um, you know, I think with with most tribes, um, in in terms of reckoning and understanding our own sovereignty as both a um, something related to you know a legal and juridical kind of control over our own futures on the one hand, but also. The cultural framework of that sovereignty, you know, so much of what sovereignty uh, is, is is a legacy of kind of American English common law notions of right, uh, even notions of authority and control that are still you know foreign to the cultural and civic cultures of indigenous people. So I think there's always going to be a tension there you know, in terms of how it's defined even in the legal sphere versus how it's defined by an indigenous person describing their own nationhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's why these are all terms in English, of course, right? right. So, I mean, the, the notion of nation fits in this in a lot of ways because it's not, we're not saying nation state, we're saying nation in the, t- in the sense that we are a people that recognize ourselves as 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 being in common and having our own kind of 
you know, histories, pasts, uh, contemporary issues and, and futures to reckon with, um, the legal and juridical con control. We will always, you know, want more of that uh, to the extent that if we don't, we do, we are not in control of our own collective future, right? So I think it's it's in the service of something sort of more deeply cultural and personal that, you know, sort of a lot of these debates around sovereignty happen. But, you know, I think one side is only operating in, in thinking about it as a legal and juridical concept. And for us as Indian citizens of Indian nations, like it, it's far more than that, right? And it encompasses things like our responsibilities uh, to resources in our territory that are, you know, kind of defy some of the logics of, you know, property ownership or legal and juridical control. I'm glad you brought up property there. It's a common statement, even especially sometimes among really like well-meaning non-natives who maybe idealize indigenous people as, you know, particularly virtuous ecological stewards and all the rest is they'll say, well, Native Americans don't have property. And by that, they mean that, you know, the Penobscots and other and their neighbors did not historically have a system of property you know, akin to capitalism, which is true if you define property as capitalism, but yeah. it's definitely not true if you define property more broadly and in a sense, you know, more usefully, which is just a system of regulating access rights, which all human communities have to some degree or another. It's just sort yeah. of one of the things that makes us human. And so how would you explain the Penobscot system of, of property broadly defined in terms of, you know, access use and its responsibilities that you mentioned? It's complex to the extent that it is not the same as the system of property that kind of defines, you know, so much of the American experiment and, and, and so, so many other things. Yeah, I mean, I think your work does such a great job of this, Ian, like there is a very <laughs> definitive notion of of rights and responsibilities and, and the uh, notions of excluding others from territory and that go along with, you know, what it means to be Penobscot and be a part of this collective community, which has systems in it, you know, and, and I'm not going to kind of repeat a lot of this because some of it has been misinterpreted, but I think, you know, there are systems around particular clan relationships, right, to places across Penobscot territory, which define perhaps family hunting territories, right, or, mm -hmm. you know, that, that again, are shaped by exclusion or, or cooperation. I, I would just say, like, you know, the idea of exclusion is also not a singular kind of concept. My understanding of sort of Wabanaki property uh, notions is that, exclusion and cooperation need to go together for them to make sense in a Wabanaki imaginary, you know, so I think, and, and again, your, <laughs> your work kind of really dives into a really interesting way to think about that, which is the, the notion of exclusion and, and cooperation in terms of how to manage resources over long periods of time, you know, the lessons for Wabanaki people, you know, that you know, this is already thousands of years old, like our system, by the time the English and French show up to our shores. You right. know? So I think it's, I think it's a really fascinating sort of 
disruption in, in the way that the cultures get revealed to themselves, to each other, by trying to argue for and manipulate, you know, each other's kind of systems to kind of get what you want out of a particular situation. So I think you see that, right, being sorted in, you know, especially across the 17th and in the first part of the 18th century, especially like, you know, in these treaty councils. Um, so there are great expressions of what it means for exclusion and, and property and protecting resources where, you know, it's interesting. I think you see, you know, the European power, especially the English in the context of this part of the world, trying to argue for things that would disrupt Wabanaki um, relations, right? Trying to build fort in, in areas which are critical to sustenance and, and things like that. So I think there's some great, you know, as you know, there's some great back and forth, but, you know, I would say it has a multiplicity of articulations around, mm -hmm. if you look at, I'm not going to repeat sort of some of the mistakes that say spec made in terms of firming up these, right. these territories of like family territories, but there's a definitely organizational frameworks around family and clan hunting territories and, and access rules, which are very complex. Um, you see them attempts at articulating them, you know, all the way across greater Rabanaki territory. And I think the Confederacy itself, you know, we often talk about the Wabanaki Confederacy as being kind of a post heavy European contact kind of, kind of entity. I think the concepts of, of collective decision-making and, and coming together as different entities and nations and, and sorting out these problems that are larger than any particular nation definitely predate that. I mean, the, the technology of this sort of diplomacy is sort of, I think of it as thousands of years old, oriented around resources. You know, the same stories uh, that sort of motivate and uh, create an understanding of our confederacy and sort of how do we get along as nations are the same set of concepts that that are sort of in the original, what we would think of as treaties with non-humans, right? So the stories and agreements that are right. given through our relations with non-humans, these are the same set of principles that are that we um, create and engage with, with uh, human communities as well. So I think it's a really... You know, to say it's it's a system of quote unquote property, which is driven simply by, you know, and I'm not saying this is what you said, but I think that it's driven by a set of complex relationships that mm -hmm. um, for us as Wabanaki people need to be revisited, need to be up updated, right? And so this notion of stewardship, and, and this is as much about not only changing human relations, but this is about changing environmental uh, conditions and environmental relations over time. So I think this is, you know, some of the power that indigenous knowledge systems have in terms of creating these, these notions of stewardship and responsibility, that it kind of has an inherent flexibility while still having these sort of baseline set of agreements is one of the things that is making it clear that indigenous leadership during something like climatic change will be very important because of these systems are very adaptive to climate and other kinds of environmental changes over time. That's a good point. And to recap or summarize, uh, I think one of, the, one of the highlights, so I think that's a, a useful 
English language takeaway for audience members without much background is like the idea of right a system of like the Penobscot as stewards in cooperation with other other humans and non-humans and it's not that's right whereas in Anglo-American law there is the the ideal of the individual property owner who owns a particular space of territory and has near total rights over this this particular patch of, of soil in perpetuity to pass on to in many cases to their descendants without really any any interference with with few exceptions right. in comparison to right with the uh the penobscot notion is much more right uh group oriented and mediated with you know through with with different multiple stakeholders absolutely you know and i think that complexity is so easy to be, I mean, there's something, you know, the rise of like English common law property systems that kind of, or, you know, I mean, that, that whole system of property, right. That goes, you know, first from God to King to whatever, you right. know, like, like that, that system has become naturalized into this sort of system of property that is individual. I mean, that has not been around, you know, all that long. Right. right. And and one could argue that the creation and <laughs> rearticulation of that system has actually led to some of our <laughs> some of our current uh, problems across the, the globe in yeah. terms of because uh, I was involved in I think, you know, this, Ian, you know, I was involved in a paper that came out in proceedings of the National Academy of Science, you know, that looked at human influence on ecosystems and biodiversity over the last 12,000 years. And, you know, quite honestly, the findings in that paper were up until the last 500 years or so, humans have been pretty positive influences on biodiversity, like almost universally. Oh, I was not aware of that. Yeah. And so we had this. Really? Like, I mean, even like, I don't know, I thought the ancient Romans killed all the Sahara elephants and things like that. Yeah. I mean, there are. Yeah. I mean, agreed. There have been. (laughs) This is why we, we pulled back the lens from individual species clearly oh so not megafauna because like people are not nice to megafauna let's be let's be real no there have been (laughs) there have been a lot of but again you know pull back the lens yeah absolutely right so megafauna we can yeah because the woolly mammoths would like a word you know (laughs) um, but again you were talking you know individual species are one thing but again biodiversity right how many species across so oftentimes these megafauna die off and then or killed off by humans right they are replaced by more species by and large right over a lot of period of time and then so again you know pulling back that lens using notions of ecosystem and biodiversity um, it has only been in this most recent iteration of the colonial scene or whatever this exploitation of the property where where you see huge impacts um negative impacts of biodiversity caused by humans i mean there there have been you know go back you know millions of years of course you can see biodiversity ebbing and flowing over periods of time uh due to non-human issues but looking just at this twelve thousand years you definitely see humans by and large creating and maintaining landscape of biodiversity and enhancing it. Really? Um, Even yeah. with farming? I was, I, so, so I'm farming, farming gets trickier for okay. sure. 
but by and large, even with farming, because they're not farming everywhere. Ah, uh, yes. Um, okay. That there is still, <laughs> you can read the paper. I mean, there's, yeah, you know, I there's will. I didn't know about this. Run. So this is yeah, gonna, yeah, yeah I, I'm there. Yeah. But I, but I, you know, it, it's, it's very much the measurements we use and the, and the information that you see, it is this colonial scene, right? Mm-hmm. This, this particular notion of property, this particular set of forms of extraction, that are just a few hundred years old that have really impacted biodiversity um, caused by, by, by humans. So that is without a doubt. They're, you know, like any academic paper that gets published in a high impact journal like that, we have enough caveats to cover some of your of questions. Course. But uh, yeah, no, for sure. That's a good segue. Cause I think one of the, again, one of the popular non-native perceptions of indigenous thinking about ecology and, and, and property is, you know, very, I mean, it's highly inflected with this noble savage kind of caricature of indigenous people as, you know, hopelessly, you know, sort of Disney's Pocahontas. They're these cartoony projections of sentimentality who don't make alliances or difficult decisions or have human complexity. But one of the aspects of this is the the framing of indigenous ecology as sort of very idealistic and, and not particularly practical. But of course, the case has been made by indigenous people and, and should be made more that, you know, there's something very practical and realistic about the Wabanaki view of, of resource management and allocation, right? What's been called the, the common pot, right? This... Yeah. Could you explain a bit? I think this is uh, maybe a, a, a useful kind of bite-sized concept to, to get into what we're talking about, what the, the idea of the, the common pot plays in, in sort of Wabanaki uh, approaches towards ecology and, and resource management. Yeah, you know, and I think, um, you know, it's a familiar concept to folks in terms of, you know, things like sustainability, right? Mm-hmm. I, think, I think is one way to kind of describe that is like using, accessing and stewarding resources that are, have enough for all, you know, and recognizing, uh, I, I think what's different between sort of say our notion of common pot and then, which is, can get mobilized in a particular very human-centered way and then sort of Mm -hmm. how the Wabanaki again would be sort of thinking about the common pot as also having sort of perhaps rights or notions of protection that non-humans might have across that the shared landscape beyond humans. So I'd say it's like thinking about it as sustainability with rights, you know, and to non-humans as well. And I think that's how I would describe the common pot. I mean, Lisa Brooks's work on this is obviously she mobilizes that in right. particular historical periods and how that gets mobilized. And I think that work is really is really good about that. I, but I think, you know, to think about it more generally, yeah, it's this notion that there is enough to sustain us all and that the common pod approach is definitely about our responsibility is to, to ensure that, that that is done in some equitable, fair fashion, for sure. Yeah. And like when you see in the records, it's this acknowledgement, you know, you it's dealing with reality. Like you can't change it. You don't have to love everybody in the pot with you or whatever, but it's yeah. there. So you have to figure out how to make this thing work. And so you can see with the treaties you're talking about, where like the Wabanaki are, they're approaching the English. And sometimes there's, it's like they're trying to find some kind of an arrangement where they're like, look, 
like you guys are here so you're in the pot so we have to like figure out some ground rules because this is just the way you know we're all swimming in the same pool Uh, exactly so there's just no way to to logic your way out of that yeah you know and i think that notion that you can solve it you know i think is like that's driven in the system right that there is a way through you know i think as you mentioned and in some ways you know we deal with this in the contemporary sense it's like and there's sort of discourse inside wabanaki communities is like why would we keep showing up when they give us no respect, you know, or, or any kind of whatever? It's just so driven through our notions of diplomacy and engagement and across this common pot. You know, we will show up. That notion to assert and to create the, the fine minds and, and attentions to solving these problems across greater Wabanaki territory, it, it is a duty to show up and engage. It's a hard one to <laughs> break. So, you know, I think it's like that, that is a really, it's a tricky kind of space, you know. Um, but I would say we continue to show up and sometimes things do get, you know, a little bit better. We can shift the scale towards uh, our notions uh, and our rights ever so slowly. But I think that that, that definitely can happen. Yeah. So the 1980 Maine Indian Claims Settlement Act was was one of those instances that that did change things. It has relevance right on through to today. And I really like the story because it it starts with Passamaquoddy uh, elder Louise Sakabasin finding an old treaty under her bed. Uh, and so for me, there's there's this real kind of narrative sort of completion because I argue in my own work, one of the sort of key moments of their uh, exclusion from, from a lot of their lands in the mid 18th century was when some land company found an old copy of a patent in an attic somewhere. That's um, right. <laughs> and so um, here we go, like 250 years later, uh, uh, Louise Sakabazin finds this different treaty uh, under her bed, I, I hope in an attic somewhere uh, again. Uh, and then it eventually leads to the, the 1980 Maine Indian Claim Settlement Act. So what did this act do? It's, it's a really interesting story. I agree. I think that's, that's one of the starts of it. I think there have been other kind of fits and starts to the Settlement Act, um, especially, I think, tensions rising around land and land um, seizure and control in, in, in Washington County. I think that, that, that there's a lot of instances of that um, happening throughout the 1960s. And this definitely leads to what becomes the main Indian Claim Settlement Act. Yeah, the, it, the Settlement Act itself, of course, is settling title. There is basically, it settles title to lands that were quote unquote, had been secured and taken by the states, mostly the state of Massachusetts, which of course is a precursor to the state of Maine. Um, After 1790, in 1790, the United States passed uh, a law called the Non-Intercourse Act, but this is just a furthering of some of the the policies that had kind of given weight to and sort of um, became doctrinaire through the doctrine of discovery, which is that European sovereigns and then later other sovereigns like the United States, the sort of federal entities, these are the only entities that could 
negotiate and treaty with, with Indian tribes. And in 1790, the United States took over that role and said, yes, we're not going to let provinces or whatever they were called, territories or states right. do this work. Part of it is just a sort of logistical thing that you can't have a bunch of different entities trying to negotiate title. You should, you know, sort of for paperwork purposes, probably, and other things. Uh, I think they were have, also worried a lot of the southern states were getting real crazy oh, at that time. Totally. So. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's true, for sure. And, yeah. I mean, and, and they continued to even yes. afterwards. So, yes, they did. Even after this law. So, yeah. so I think there's, you know, I think there's um, this interest in a sort of sovereign federal control. Um, which basically made a series of treaties. The ones in the 1790s in particular were for pretty large swaths of Passamaquoddy and Penobscot land. And then into the first part of the 19th century, um, a couple of treaties as well. And basically this law, this federal law, which preempts state law, uh, of course, made these treaties illegal, right? Because they were not endorsed or signed off by the federal government. Um, they were negotiated entirely by uh, the, first the state of Massachusetts and then, the, and then sort of a couple of agreements slash treaties <laughs> by the state of Maine. And that accounted for close to two thirds of the state of Maine that once you examine that federal law and the treaties, including one of the, I think the, the treaty, I forget which treaty she found under, it was a 1796. I think it was, think it was or, 94. 1794. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And I think, you know, those treaties, which are sort of in violation of federal law, form the core of this Settlement Act. You know, I think the other the other moving part, Ian, which I think is really important in this is that, in fact, the lawsuit that led up to the Settlement Act and sort of put into law um, the notion that we while we had been under state control as state tribes for, for since basically the creation of the state of Maine and before that state of Massachusetts, especially Penobscot and Passamaquoddy, that it, it also redefined our relationship with the federal government. So what happened actually in the Settlement Act and the lead up to it was that the Passamaquoddies and then Penobscots uh, joined, um, sued the federal government to represent them and protect our interests as, as, as tribal nations. And so the first hurdle was sort of like, are we part of this federal system? And the courts said, well, absolutely. We're tribes as, as defined in you know, federal law. There's nothing in federal law. We have no treaties with the United States, but there's nothing in, in federal law that requires you to have a treaty with the United States in order to be a federally recognized tribe. So they go through all this sort of, all the standards and law mean that we are tribes. The federal government does have this trust responsibility to us and to represent our interests in court. And so that's what the Passamaquoddy v. Morton case from, from 19, starting in 1972 and finally decided in 1975 represents is that we are full tribes in the federal system. And from there, because of that, case and because of the the non-intercourse act which is sort of implicated in that case we have this issue of of clouded title to a huge part of the state of maine wherein treaties that were signed you know were, were operationalized through property relationships throughout 
huge chunk of Maine that were now hard to uh, reconcile with sort of current deeds and their legality. So, you know, what's interesting is we often tell the story that uh, the Settlement Act was um, kind of rushed at the end because the tribes might not get uh, a settlement going from the federal administration of Jimmy Carter to Ronald Reagan in 1980. And, oh, right. And all of this, like there was a rush and, you know, and it's only in the last few months where some of the more troubling language that sort of impacts us like municipality and other things. And I think, you know, what's interesting is that I guess they had sorted a lot of it out, but there were sort of hiccups in the property market in the state of Maine where titles were really difficult to get to land, you know, which is an important part of the property system. If you can't go back and say, oh, there's this treaty from 1794. Oh, by the way, a court, a federal court just said that that's illegal. That is a very difficult space to get a title in. So um, so many deeds were delayed. and um, There was this sort of, I don't know who felt more pressure, obviously, you can say, oh, they weren't going to allow for the freezing up of the property system in the state of Maine. But in fact, that was, it was being slowed down for sure as the 1970s progressed after the, after the 1975 case. So hopefully I explained like, yeah. I mean, the, the organization around the, the Settlement Act was definitely about, you know, these treaties time signed after the Non-Intercourse Act, but, you know, and, and that and so much more, of course. I do think it's just a great irony that the colony of Massachusetts spent most of its history ignoring what the king and parliament had to say and just did whatever it wanted. If that's a through line in Massachusetts history, bigger than any other. Uh, (laughs) And just then, so then of course there's the uh, American independence and then Massachusetts just kept right on trucking and just sort of was like, yep, we're going to keep doing whatever we want regarding dealings with, with indigenous people. And then, yes, the fact that this is what what does them in. And then what yeah. I think it was like, what was it, like two-thirds of the land area of the state yeah. of Maine or something yeah. was going to be impacted by this. Like Totally. Um, yeah, it, it's a remarkable story. I mean, there are, you know, this legal framework, of course, is used in other land claims here in the East, right, uh, across New England and even into New York State, right, that the, the non-intercourse gets implicated in in a, in a number of other, what leads to other settlements with other tribal nations here in the East. I think that the lack of treaties with the United States, right? So places in the East that these states, New York and Massachusetts in particular, you know, did, did this outside of federal governmental control. You know, and I think, you know, what drives all this is the same thing that drives sort of the federal framework if for no other reason we know from the musical Hamilton that you know a lot of these people and the founders both of the federal government and the state of Maine and the state of New York a lot of them were uh, land speculators I think that's sort of where they make their riches and they are speculating with indigenous people's land that's uh, how they that was the big resource so I think that's yeah uh, I think that's a really defining characteristic so it makes sense that Massachusetts transitioning to Maine. And if you look at even, you know, these maps of Maine in the 1820s, and, you know, it's still pretty much a Wabanaki space for a huge part of Maine, the state, what is now the state of Maine, you know, it's like settlements are primarily southern coastal, um, a little bit inland, you know, a little bit into the Penobscot River Valley, but north and 
and, and West and East, you know, are still primarily Wabanaki spaces. And so the, these early treaties and the sort of the land speculation that goes, you know, from the Kennebec River all the way through to, you know, Eastern Maine and into Northern Maine are really profound documents that are built on the backs of sort of these um, illegal <laughs> frameworks of uh, treaties by the states of, of Massachusetts and Maine. Yeah, I think it's important to, to note that like there is a real, we were talking about this before the, the show started, that like there's this conception among so many non-Native people where they'll say, well, you know, it's really a shame all the dispossession that happened, but you know, it was all legal and it was very orderly, which gets a lot of things backwards and just wrong where so much of this process in many parts of the United States, both in the colonial period and in the, the federal period, the process of colonization oftentimes is not orderly. And sometimes it's just downright illegal, even by the own rules cooked up by the colonizers right. to sort of try to regulate what they were doing. And so in the early federal period, like the policymakers in DC had their own ideas for how they thought that the nation should be colonized and divvied up. And then the, oftentimes the settlers on the ground really had their own ideas about how they wanted things to go. And then you had various states and then the federal government sometimes just passing laws later on just to try and put some sort of a legal imprimatur on what was going on. And then yeah, I think the, the main Indian Claim Settlement Act is just one of the, the biggest examples of pointing out the ways in which things were not legal or regular or orderly in many cases. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, I think that invites, right, all these sort of inherent contradictions, right, and sort of a settling up. I always think about it as like, you know, the official policies were bad, but then sort of that took a bunch of land, but Again and again, you see through various forms of implicit or explicit racisms or, or whatever, right? The taking of Indian lands by using the, you know, seeing various forms of loopholes to just, you know, take the lands. I mean, and the state of Maine was involved in some fairly shady deals for taking, you know, I think of always the four townships, which are so important. And we, you know, as Penobscot Nation, you know, tried so hard for so many, you know, that those are, those are on the chopping block for treaties starting in the 1790s and um, how hard we fought to kind of keep those as a kind of tribal holding. And then really kind of through a various misrepresentation and an act of a legislature, taking these four townships from us as the Penobscot Nation in the 1830s, you know, just, it's just so horrible in the way that it's done and the way that mm. promises are made and broken and manipulating things during when people are starving and, and, and suffering for a variety of other reasons, you know, just, it's just an, an amazing thing that ultimately, you know, with the state of Maine, you know, seizing, say, those townships or, you know, basically the trust fund that was, you know, supposed to be our monies from our retained lands from the state of Maine that just, you know, uh, suddenly and during World War II, they're just like, oh, I guess we'll use the Indian Trust Fund to cover our costs for World War II and just be like, uh, we won't replenish that. You know, like just absolute horrific dealings that the state of Maine is responsible for. And then ultimately not 
paying a dime in the Settlement Act either, right? Which is all federal dollars. You could say it's a bailout of the state of Maine by the federal government in 1980. Like right. that's one, one interpretive frame because it's the federal government is just merely represent, you know, they're being tasked with representing a tribal interest. It's the state of Maine that did the uh, perpetrated these illegal dealings. So who wins and who loses in any of these situations um, when, you know, there's an outlay of $81 million total in that settlement act with property and two thirds of the state of Maine that's bordering on a billion or $2 billion, right? So it's in such a tricky space to kind of be like, where is justice in all of this, I think. So that I think that's really, really tricky. Yeah. And to highlight an aspect of what you said, and I think to, to emphasize also where the, you know, where the sort of grievances are, James Francis, the uh, Penobscot tribal historian, he said to me at one point, you know, oh, our, we don't really have a big problem with, with Uncle Sam, like our, our big problem is with the state of Maine. That is where our major quarrels lie. And of course, with different nations, you know, sometimes that's reversed, like the history of different peoples sure. have been, some of them have had recently more, more positive relationships with the, the U.S. states that they're in, mm-hmm. uh, but not with the federal government. With the Penobscot, it's definitely the, the other way around. So after the Maine Indian Claim Settlement Act, uh, and specifically with the Penobscot River, I think the Penobscot case is one of a number of examples that to, again, people who are non-Native and don't pay much attention would be confusing or or gets things backwards in terms of how they think about Mm -hmm. uh, Indigenous property. Because you have since, you know, in in the past few decades, the Penobscot have argued, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, that basically we, uh, the Penobscot, have the, have the right to regulate access to our river, the Penobscot River, because that was, that was given to us as part of the, the Maine Indian Claim Settlement Act, that our, our territory is centered on the river, and then yes, the islands in it. And it is the state of Maine that's trying to say, what do you mean? The river belongs to everybody. Uh, How can you try and limit who has access to this river? And we see this in certain other cases where, you know, uh, indigenous nations will say like, uh, this land is ours. And then the federal government will say like, what do you mean? This is a national park. It's for everybody. How can you be so selfish and narrow-minded as to try and limit who can use this land? Uh, and especially to people who say like, well, Native Americans don't, don't want to have limited property access or anything like that. So am I, uh, am I far off the mark with the, the Penobscot position with regarding the river? You know, I think it's even more complicated than that. I think I would imagine so. Yeah, the issue is, you know, I think the Settlement Act is pretty quiet, you know, on who has control over the river. You know, I think, you know, the issue of pointing to this Settlement Act, you know, and, you know, this gets down to like their mention of the islands, you know, in the river mm-hmm. and, and sort of, you know, the logic of recognizing that we have jurisdiction and, and recognition of the, the islands in our territory, but it doesn't say so much about the river itself. It, it you know, if you want to say, oh, it recognizes islands, but then it says, you know, we give up all other rights to other territory. You know, I think that's, that is one, one way of interpreting it, but 
you know, I think it was called a land claim settlement, not a water claim settlement. So it, there's a lot of logics in there that are really mm. <laughs> tricky in terms of the first circuit and the state of Maine having one position and, and then, you know, the federal government and the Penobscot nation having another view of it in terms of the recognition that the settlement act is pretty quiet on jurisdiction of the river means that it, we're not arguing that the settlement act recognizes it, but I think, you know, the precepts in federal Indian law are, unless it's explicitly taken away from us, we retain the rights to it. If you see what I'm saying. So I think, uh, yes, you know, yes. I think that's a really different kind of formulation. I think it's hard one for people to wrap their heads around though, because I think we think of like minority rights as something like a government would give to people, right. Or mm-hmm. recognize in people, but in fact, our sovereignty and our territory, our territorial control are, are things that are retained, you know, less explicitly taken. I think that's one of the rubs in the case. I think even the First Circuit kind of has wrong. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I think what I read was that they essentially the Penobscot position is also that, well, we never would have agreed to the existing 1980 settlement if it had taken away river access. And so when Maine argues that the 1980 claims, you know, doesn't grant access that the Penobscot position was like, well, you know, it was implicit. We never would have, certainly, we never would have signed something that took away control of the river. Yeah, that, no, okay. and, and, no, that's absolutely the case. And, oh, okay, and, okay. You know, I, I think one of the things that is sort of misunderstood about, about the Settlement Act is that there are a series of cases in after Passamaquoddy v. Morton, both in state and federal court, which are increasingly recognizing our inherent sovereignty as, as the Penobscot nation. The law itself is saying, and at the time, the, the, the municipality language was just like, oh, this is just like a fail-safe. This won't impact your sovereignty. This is still an enhancement of your sovereignty. And then, you know, starting later on, the, the interpretation of this language. Sorry, what was the municipality language? Uh, I think most so, people aren't going to know. Yeah, sorry. You know, there's one section in the Settlement Act that describes that we have all the rights, limitations, blah, 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 as municipalities, right? Which is undermined in other parts of the Settlement Act that there's, we have, you know, over, you know, full sovereignty over internal tribal matters. Um, But there's sort of even, you know, in the preamble of the law and and in the legislative record, there's like all this language that like, this will not harm your sovereignty at all. But of course, somehow that language did, because the court cases themselves, right, after Passamaquoddy v. Morton, we're about recognizing our inherent tribal sovereignty, just like other tribes. And of course, you know, since then, at least since the early 90s, we've been uh, trying to fix those pieces of the Settlement Act that kind of took away from things that we had for just maybe a, a couple of years there in the late 70s and were being recognized. And so, in fact, not a great deal in terms of our ability to control our own destinies, you know, in terms of this limitation language. Right. I wish there were more, you know, anniversary or histories relevant today for like happy reasons. Like, oh, I need to do more episodes where like, and this is the anniversary of the invention of this delicious dessert or whatever. But this one, very recently, the latest iteration of this river dispute came down, where I believe the Supreme Court either found against the Penobscot or just declined to hear 
yeah. any appeal on the case. And so that's the, correct. The case yeah. is done. That's correct. So the first circuit, that's why I referenced that in terms okay. of recognizing Thanks. that. So it made its way through federal district court here in Maine and then was appealed to the first circuit. The first circuit ruled against us in, a, in an initial mm-hmm. ruling. And then it went to the full first circuit. It's called en banc, which is a kind of, you know, oh, yeah. a further appeal within the first circuit. The en banc decision repeated basically the decision from the initial first circuit case. And then the petition for certiorari, which is, you know, the appeal to the Supreme Court was not granted. So that means the case stands as the en banc decision. Okay. Um, so, yeah, it's so crazy to think about how this language, you know, how this language gets sort of firmed up and, you know, you have lawyers and others kind of defining and <laughs> words and looking at a dictionary to see like the definition of island and the state's position as being like somehow we retain these treaty fishing rights, but, you know, they had to make the argument that they don't exist fishing from a canoe, but only from land that is in the, you know, that doesn't make any sense, of course, you know, culturally or historically. We invented the birch bark canoe. I mean, obviously our fishing is going to be dependent upon it, you know, like any of those kinds of illogics, right. That sort of define this colonial interpretation is really tricky. I'm always amazed when like the law comes down to things like that. Like I I recently learned the, the Supreme court had to figure out, they had to define sandwich. If like a, an empanada was a sandwich in order to decide some sort of case about setting up a restaurant and some sort of a strip mall where the property lease only allowed for a sandwich shop. And so it went all the way to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court had to decide what different foods constituted a sandwich and which did not. Oh yeah, so, that's right. <laughs> um, yeah, and I actually, I can't remember how they did it. Uh, and this is of course where, sorry, originalists, James Madison did not have an opinion on sandwiches. <laughs> or maybe he did, and I'm not aware of it. You know, that'll be a, a future episode. But yeah. yeah right. um, so thinking about, again, the sovereignty and property and these, these access rights, I'm wondering uh, what your thoughts are about the uses and problems of, of kind of categorizing indigenous property systems altogether in these cases. So I'm thinking about the latest World Climate Summit. Uh, there were various indigenous peoples around the world who went and they had pretty similar arguments they were making. But then I was just also thinking even within the U.S. nation that there are so many different nations with very different traditions thinking of Penobscot and Ho-Chunk and Dine and all the rest. Do you think that it is on balance useful or counterproductive to make law or policy on indigenous property systems as a whole? Yeah, it's such a great question. And I would say it is a positive thing, right? So I think, and I'm glad you mentioned the climate meetings, you know, I think one of the issues related to formulating and recognizing across the board, a system of indigenous rights, you know, I think is a very productive space not because it fully defines our understanding of it, right? So that's the, <laughs> the trick around it, much like mm-hmm. the pro- our discussion around property, right? It won't fully identify in the various cultural frameworks, sort of our notions of nationhood. But I think it's still very much 
like a lot of systems of universal rights, more about harm reduction and defining uh, the potential for roles of Indigenous people and recognizing inherent Indigenous rights, I think opens up spaces for the kinds of engagements that would sort of suit and, and perhaps meet sort of Indigenous imaginaries and futures around sort of our roles and responsibilities across human and non-human communities. So I think if you look at, say, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, most of the language in there, as you know, Ian, is uh, harm reduction, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) The the idea that nation states will not continue to do the kinds of really shady dealings and and, and expropriation and and seizing of Indigenous lands, resources, and and abuse of Indigenous peoples through forced assimilations and that, that sort of thing. But a lot of it is, some of it's forward-looking, you know, that that we as Indigenous peoples should be in control of our own cultures, communities, and territories, right? That it doesn't fully define what that means, but it it, it is a sense of nationhood that is recognized in that UN declaration and sort of in terms of working in the context of a or multiple nation states with with indigenous nations, it sets up that framework. And one of the real struggles is to even get that already UN charter, UN Uh declaration, and incorporating that into the the UN um, framework on climate change. So the Paris Accords are mentioned it very indirectly. But in fact, the Paris Accords, like some of the biodiversity accords that came before, group indigenous peoples with local communities and just, you know, the, the whole framework in Paris is uh, indigenous peoples and local communities. It's kind of called IPLC. Mm-hmm. And that is a, a, as a direct contradiction of that local communities don't, you know, they're talking about, again, harm reduction or potential for certain groups being impacted more so by climate change. But it's really not a form of recognition of rights in terms of decision making and stewardship, right? So, because it kind of treats local communities very clearly as just subunits of a nation state. And by grouping us as Indigenous peoples there, it's a real violation of the UN's own rights of Indigenous people. So, I think right. the, the thirst for overcoming that in the, the conference of party meetings last year was uh, in Scotland, right? We did see just in a really small new part of this agreement uh, related to forests and forest stewardship, the recognizing in their indigenous people's rights to management and, and also the ability of indigenous peoples to receive monies to protect forests across the world as it relates to the Paris Accord. That was somewhat of an advance in that language because it, it didn't group immediately indigenous peoples with local communities and recognize on some level indigenous people's role in terms of management and stewardship. So it's a live issue. It's, it's an ongoing fight, but indigenous people are not included directly in the sort of main tent around these you know climate negotiations is because we're, we're being put in with local communities as subsections of as part of nation states. So it's a real struggle for sure. It's about power. I mean, when you, yeah. and you know, not, you know this, but you know, thinking about there's, if you're going to actually respect indigenous sovereignty, that means respecting their right to do stuff that non-native neighbors don't want or don't like. Any definition that doesn't include that isn't real sovereignty. Exactly. I think that's something that still 
eludes or frustrates non-native environmental groups and, and other people who again, based on, they think that, well, they'll say with, without knowing much about it, or as you know, sort of noble savage tropes, I'll just say, if everybody just did what the, the indigenous people wanted, everything would be better. And I'm like, well, all right, but that means that you have to do stuff that they want to do that you don't want to do. And then you find out, hey, if you, if you look at what the Salish want to do in the Pacific Northwest for their ideas about resource management, et cetera, it might not necessarily be what Greenpeace wants or you know, yeah. what somebody else wants. Yeah, uh, and, to, and to go back to even the Penobscot case, you know, for a while through the 80s, actually, the state of Maine was recognizing a kind of joint jurisdiction of the river. You know, the attorney general had, had, had documents. This is all in the case, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think the Penobscot position, and this is just like these treaty councils that you referenced so well, is that the common pot approach, like, it's, it's not that we were exactly about excluding state interests. It was like, let's recognize each other as having some sort of joint jurisdiction or control. I actually think that that was at least amenable. It was only when the state said, we're no longer recognizing any tribal authority, and this is from a different attorney general in 2012, that we felt like we had to start this lawsuit because they, they had changed positions actually. That's why we consider it a takings, because for for a while throughout the 80s and 90s, they were recognizing a kind of joint jurisdiction of the river itself, the main Mm. stem of the river. So I think that that's what's, you know, sometimes lost in this case as well. That's a good point. Doug Keel at Northwestern, he's also an Oneida citizen. He has made a really good point about, so like in Wisconsin, one of these kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't, where there's this expectation among states and non-natives that like, well, indigenous people, it's sad what happened to them, but they're poor. And so when communities like the Oneida would actually have control over a piece of territory. So in the case, it was, it was bordering some, you know, random subdevelopment in Wisconsin. And so their non-indigenous neighbors were getting really upset that the Oneida were in control of zoning and had actual power to dictate various land use in the community to their own benefit, no less. And that mm-hmm. their non-native neighbors were just getting really, really upset and mad that like, yeah, we, you know, we wish these people well, but they're going too far. They're imminent domaining us and we can't build this thing we want to. Who do these people exactly. think they are? And it's like, well, yeah, what do you think? <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> right. What do you think sovereignty means, right? You know, what? Yeah, no, that, I mean, that's really, really the thing. And I mean, I think, again, I, I mean, I'll just say that I think that's why Indigenous rights spaces, you know, they open up, you know, th- those decision making frameworks. And, and then again, it's, it's so crazy because it's like, <laughs> you know, we were during the Settlement Act period, the sort of racism and fear that gets actuated. And, and this was, you know, politicians on both Democrat, Republican, it didn't matter. Mm-hmm. You know, we're basically saying there's no nation within a nation. You know, the Indians don't deserve any of this. You know, they whatever lost or whatever frameworks they mobilize as settlers to kind of disabuse any legitimate claims that we have. And then striking fear into the citizens and saying like, they're going to come for your property. And then of course, we're saying like, uh, we're not, you know, we have to make statements about like, we're not looking towards any individual uh, homes or, you know, it's like, right. You know, we, we have to play this game, which is basically 
a fear game based upon the state, you know, having done e- all these illegal de- dealings. You know what I'm right. saying? Like they once again gets to strike the fear into average Mainers that somehow we're against them, but we're the ones that are so invested in this common pot and our, our relationships and responsibilities. And it's like, it gets turned on its head that we're the evil doers and we're the right. ones that acted inappropriately, but it's so clearly not, it's so clearly the state. Just look at their various forms of dealings in, in, these, in these particular situations. Irony is clearly dead. When, yes. when it's they're saying like, you know, what the Penobscot are going to say, like, oh, that's some real nice land you got there, exactly. Stanley. Be a real shame if uh, somebody were to just decide it's not yours anymore. Yeah. I mean, I think fear with Indigenous issues is a lot of that, though, like like anything, you know, the yeah. fear of, of civil rights. And then, you know, it's like, oh, if they have the power they're going to do to us what we did to them, kind of right. somewhere in the back of the, the the framework you know i think is the the, the idea of retribution but you know i I, right. I don't see any evidence of that but right i guess it's a fear i mean that's kind of the point right right and there is i think that's the one of the real one of the most common things you'll hear from non-natives is they'll, they'll say things like oh yeah well you know the trail of tears was terrible but so that's all done now and especially east of the mississippi you get the whole like well there are no native americans left here and so that's a shame but there's nothing to be done so it's really really would be great if something could have been done but it's done now so yeah. moving on and that's then right. you know actual indigenous people say well you can do something now and then those same people often don't don't want to yeah. listen because that yes that might cost money or be hard Absolutely. Or just like, you know, I agree. It's hard to be a nation of laws. Like that requires a form of consistency. So there either was or was not a non-intercourse act in 1790. You know, it's like, I didn't write it. You didn't write it. Mm -hmm. But the constitution was, was written a long time ago too. So are we going to be like, oh, it's so far long ago. It doesn't matter. Of course, those same people will be like, not only does it matter, it matters like what what the people who wrote it thought about it. That's right. In that moment, right? That's how clearly that still matters. So I think it's just this, I get it. It's complicated. It's hard yeah. to have it both ways or whatever. I think these binds are, are ones, though, that in order to have a just society, kind of we have to <laughs> agree to these binds, you know, in terms of what it, what it is. I think one of the obstacles, though, for the law is also that I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the Macintosh decision of 1823 is still on the books and hasn't been overturned in the way that Dred Scott or Plessy v. Ferguson has. For sure. This is an obscure case for most people, but the long and short of it is the Supreme Court ruled using really just faulty logic that Native Americans don't farm, among other things that indigenous peoples basically are like bear or deer in that they wander around and don't really own their own land. And so they don't have property rights as groups. Yes. And therefore the only right they have is to turn over the land that they happen to occupy to the U.S. government, either via treaty surrender or if the U.S. government conquers it from them. This was explicitly said. It, to my knowledge, and even yeah. even in the 20th century, when other legislation was passed, you know, that was more positive for indigenous sovereignty, Macintosh yeah. has not been nullified or overturned, yeah. has it? No, not not at its core principles, right? Which is, 
ironically, of course, is that driven through that is the sort of federal supremacy over states too, right? Right. It's the same logic that drives the Non-Intercourse Act. And clearly Chief Justice Marshall at the time was responding to that, uh, the legislative kind of orientations that there was this federal interest that is supreme, but not only is it supreme over the states, that it is as a European Christian sovereign or European-based, now American Christian sovereign, that the logic was, oh, we gave you Christianity and civilization, and then in return, you don't get to have full property rights, you know, kind of is some of the logic in his writing around it, right? At that core is then federal U.S., supremacy over tribal nation sovereignty. So, you know, from that is, you know, the fact that Indian reservations are, reservation lands are in fact title owned by the federal government in trust for tribes is the still operational norm that is driven in Macintosh. So I'm glad that you bring that up though, because that was my, my next question. So dealing with, and this ties in this idea of harm reduction and balancing what we'll do the most good now, even if it requires kind of compromising one's principles. There's a number of indigenous nations who generally have lobbied in favor of having their lands held in federal trust rather than in in other forms. And so I'm thinking in part, the Mashpee in, in Massachusetts, they very explicitly at various points were lobbying against being just sort of treated as the citizens the same as everybody else in the U.S. and instead having Mashpee held in trust. So I think some people would be surprised by that. So what is the appeal for various uh, indigenous nations over time in having this kind of paternalistic relationship with the federal government? Yeah, it's so critically tied to our sovereignty. You know, Mm -hmm. I think having the idea that a reservation itself and and that our sort of regulatory and other forms of control as tribal governments gets very much implicated into the federal ownership of these lands. So I, and that's because, again, because of Macintosh, but then, you know, I think it's this notion that, you know, I think this has become firmed up probably because the federal government starting in the 60s and 70s with the Self-Determination Act and other things, you know, bound itself in law. So I think, well, Macintosh, in terms of everything that's still on the books there, what happened uh, as opposed to overturning that case is that the federal government, through a series of laws, including the Self-Determination Act of 1975, really committed itself to being the the backstop of tribal sovereignty in, in a lot of ways. So I think the system as currently conceived, right? This is not the Dawes Act federal government, <laughs> right? right? That was uh, seizing tribal lands and creating just new laws, whole cloth out of just, how can we get more Indian land even after they signed a treaty? To clarify for our audience, yeah. the Dawes Act of 1887 it essentially, it broke up all these tribal reservations into male-headed, ideally, households. And each household would get like 100 or 125 acres. And then, surprise, surprise, all the land that was left over, because there was more land than there was Indians, would be sold to white settlers, supposedly for the benefit of these tribes. And it didn't work out very well, to say the least. 
Well, it worked out well for some people. Sorry, yes. Uh, <laughs> it not did for not Indians. work out well for the, for the tribes themselves, uh, yeah. overwhelmingly. Yeah. Yeah, so I think this is the, the formulation that I would say is it firmed up the reservation system as tying to uh, a federal authority. And, and, and in some ways, you know, I think, you know, I've written about this, you know, with uh, treatment as a state for EPA and, and some other thing, you know, like where basically with a federal enhancement, right, with federal interest, that's where the real meat of tr- what contemporary tribal sovereignty is about. So I think that reality is what drives this uh, situation. There's also a whole set of problems that come with that as, as well, like having the federal government involved at all can really limit the options that tribes pursue. And it requires sort of these approvals and all sorts of other things that other interests or, or, or states might, might not uh, face when it comes to development or any other more radical shifts in, in how the property is used. But that's the system, right? So right. even if you look at this really amazing case from what a couple of years ago, the McGirt case from Oklahoma, right? <laughs> the McGirt case basically recognized tribal sovereignty in eastern Oklahoma because of the way the treaties were worded and and the way that the, the lawsuit was pursued, which was sort of saying the federal government signed this treaty, still hasn't been rescinded, even though the properties have been sold and whatnot, there is still a kind of sovereign authority by the tribal governments in eastern Oklahoma because of this treaty, this federal <laughs> treaty. Mm. And I think, again, you know, what what is of interest there is because of the federal interest, right? And there's, you know, federal preemption is sort of part of what happens in the Constitutional Republic of the United States in the federal system. That's the core of it. It wasn't because it was inherent tribal sovereignty, right? It was that the treaty created a federal interest there. And I think that's always going to be the kind of the issues that we lean into until there are some real restructuring from things that are, as you mentioned, started in 1823, (laughs) probably even before that. With that case, I think a lot of people had not been paying attention to, I guess, Neil Gorsuch, whatever else one knows about him, apparently has a pretty consistent judicial record that is pretty pro-Indigenous. I remember reading he was like, he was a pretty uh, important vote in that case. Yeah, no, that's right. He was the conservative that sided with the He's this a is, Westerner, and I know, yeah. like, I think that influenced him where there was other case law out West somewhere where he was. Correct. Saying. Yeah. So I think uh, the other sort of Republican appointee who had some of that behind her, too, was Justice O'Connor. Mm. So she had this Western, you know, I guess she's from Arizona or whatever, you know, so she yeah. had some of that as well. And ironically, it took Justice Ginsburg some time to kind of orient herself. Like she was siding with a lot of the more conservative justices when it came to tribal, some tribal sovereignty cases until probably the last decade of her time. But in her first decade or so was partly, again, because she wasn't oriented towards it. Um, I mean, theoretically, a legal movement emphasizing or political movement emphasizing a limited federal government could, in theory, not have a problem with recognizing increased indigenous sovereignty as a sort of co-equal. In In theory. theory. In theory. Right. Oh, (laughs) yes. So the other thing that I'll 
say on that is speaking of the indigenous nations who wanting this federal trust, I think you're right to point out Native Americans are not just some other previously and currently marginalized minority group. They are, of course, sovereign people, but I think that their the compromises with the, the federal government and often preferring the trust. I mean, this falls into place with how there's so many other historically disenfranchised minority groups where they generally prefer a more activist federal government. And when people say, well, considering what the federal government has done to, you know, African-Americans, how can you do this? They'll say like, well, yeah, considering what everybody not part of the federal government has done (laughs) to this group, the federal government is actually, by and large, has been a lot less bad. And so like, there's good historical reasons for this. Yeah. And I think, yeah, no. And I think that's, you know, something I was just trying to to explain to my fellow uh, commissioners on the Maine Indian Tribal State Commission just the other day that, you know, in some ways it's like, oh, people are so worried about this federal government. And, you know, I'm like, well, the ideal type for us isn't because we want federal government. We want to be the government (laughs) like that makes the decisions. It just so happens your denial of our sovereign status, uh, first and foremost, and then our inability to negotiate with you uh, because you have the upper hand basically has meant that we call uh, repeatedly on federal authorities. It's because they're on our side and that's our only option for actually our ability to control our own futures, but would, would prefer a different way. You know, I mean, that's not, there's nothing <laughs> designed in Penobscot nationhood that is, you know, dependent on the United States federal government. Much like any of the things that you and I cite, you know, it's like we are king in our own territory. We are our own Mm -hmm. deciders. Um, That's sort of what orients our civic culture and our orientation to be uh, a nation. So it's not uh, because we love the federal government. (laughs) So often it's like, ah, the federal government, not the friend you need, but the friend you have. And so... Thinking beyond the fallout of the Maine Indian Claims Settlement Act, are there any cases either in Maine or outside of Maine that are ongoing or looming up ahead that you think might have particular relevance for the 21st century for Indigenous rights, either in Maine or outside of it? You know, nothing that strongly comes to mind. You know, I think there are sort of ongoing the action here in Maine has been, in terms of a positive movement, has just been so much of the support, you know, we've been able to garner through our legislative process. We didn't get to where we wanted to be, you know, in terms of, you know, there was a sort of omnibus sovereignty bill in the legislature, which technically passed the legislature, did not get funded, and therefore was not (laughs) put forward to the governor. But in fact, of course, the governor, Janet Mills, said that she would veto that piece of legislation, and we didn't have enough votes for overriding it. So that legislation is out there to be re-picked up. There were some real victories in terms of the legislature this past session, including the the Passamaquoddy um, water bill, which would give the Passamaquoddies more sovereignty and control over their water system, especially down at um, Sabayak Pleasant Point, where they've had ongoing water issues for decades. 
And then the governor's response bill to our omnibus sovereignty bill, which was um, recognize some um, taxation rules for tribal citizens in tribal territory that is very similar to what other tribal citizens in their own territory have across the United States. And then tribal interest in online gaming, which is a sort of kind of a compromise too in terms of gaming interests for the tribes here in the state. Those are positive steps that the legislation itself being passed in both chambers of the state uh, house have been real positive developments. And it shows you just how much people are listening to the tribes in terms of and understanding that, you know, our prosperity is, is really tied to the prosperity of the rest of Maine. If you look around the country, the tribes that do well, you really heavily influence and, and create positive situations for non-tribal people. So I think people are, are getting that, that our sovereignty is critical to those situations. And, uh, I and think that it doesn't have to be zero sum. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, some still think that, but right. uh, hopefully enough, it's very much the case that it's a civil rights issue that mm-hmm. we just happen to be tribes in a state where they're not allowing us what all the other tribes get in terms of federal recognition and they're holding fast to what I think most of us many of us consider a poison pill in terms of some some language in the settlement act and uh, the first circuit and others have kind of maintained sort of the state of Maine's sort of authority and interpretation around this uh, settlement act. Oh, and just uh, circling back real quick to the the vetoing. So I guess does this mean then that Maine doesn't have a major party gubernatorial candidate this year who would have signed that act if it was funded? Yeah, that's probably accurate. So if, if, <laughs> assuming think... it's Mills <laughs> versus LePage, that means yeah. nobody is pro-signing then? I, I, I don't know the LePage's oh, okay. exact. He started out when he was governor, you know, he signed off on the, um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission creation. Oh. So, I mean, that's, that's a positive thing, of course, and that led to a really important work that also created, you know, and is maintained by uh, Wabanaki Reach. But I would say, yeah, that I think it soured over time, his back and forth with the tribes, especially around some of the fishing issues and, and other things made it a more sour relationship than that. Uh, Even though he, he grew up and knew a, a number of tribal folks, I think, including um, uh, some folks from Penobscot Nation. So Waterville is yeah. pretty close, all things considered. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think I would assume, given the, in, especially his second term, <laughs> the way that he dealt with the tribes, that it would probably, he would not sign such such a, a, a piece of legislation, especially it was authored, really uh, championed by uh, Democrats. So uh, oh, also right. reading his, <laughs> in, in his actions as governor, basically vetoing every every single piece of legislation, I believe, by Democrats. You're forgetting, was... first he vetoed everything by Democrats, and then, and then when vetoed... the Republicans didn't support him, he vetoed everything written by a Republican. It's true. <sighs> yes. So all the legislation. All the, yeah. Nobody <laughs> gets legislation. Yeah, fine. Exactly. <laughs> right. So what is something that you have recently come out mm-hmm. with that our audience should check out? 
Yeah, you know, I, so I mentioned that article in PNAS, Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. I'm really proud of a piece that we published last year, another one um, in sustainability science. Bridie McGreevy, who's in the communication and journalism here at UMaine, she and I were the lead authors that included a bunch of different authors, including a number of indigenous uh, Wabanaki scholars, um, both John Daigle's in there, who's a Penobscot faculty member, but also a number of indigenous uh, undergrad and grad students on just sort of how to do engaged research uh, mm-hmm. across Wabanaki territory and, you know, kind of the issues involved in that. So it was a very much a methods kinds of piece, but it gives a good reflection on the kinds of engaged research we've been doing over this last decade or so through the Mitchell Center and through some other university research um, projects. And, you know, in terms of the future, one of the things that I'm really excited about is the work we're doing on climate change adaptation. I mentioned that before, but also in terms of land return and land access, working with land trusts and conservation groups in the state. For me, some of this is like, oh, okay, if we can't get it done in terms of our stewardship and responsibilities through with the state of Maine, that we have other potential entities and these land trusts have really starting to come around and see tribal stewardship and responsibility to place as a real important part of their collective futures in terms of doing their work to protect uh, places across the state of Maine. And there's a lot of conservation and land trust work, uh, you know, the, you include the, the state and federal and protection of lands uh, with the land trust. It's about almost a quarter of the state of Maine is protected in some way. So if you were to think of land, you know, access and, and stewardship by Indigenous people on those territories, that would be a real significant approach. So, you know, there was a really great video of the, the return of Pine Island to the Passamaquoddy tribe done by Sunlight Media Collective. I encourage you all to go look at that. And, and, and that work was only made possible by groups coming together. And I, I'm part of the people who are actively engaging with land trusts bringing them together with the tribes and that return of that land wouldn't have happened without the participation of the land trust community. And that was land returned to the Passamaquoddy tribe. Great. Yeah. Um, We'll put links to those up on the social media feed. This is our way. And then last, what is something that somebody else has recently come out with that our audience should be aware of? You know, I'm just, I guess my mind goes to, you know, the Department of Interior just um, released a report on boarding schools in the United States. Mm-hmm. I strongly encourage people to go look at that report. Our tribes participated in the boarding schools. There are Rankos that went to Carlisle or oh. you know, both on their own and then uh, sort of uh, encouraged or forced over there. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, our tribes participated over there. And then the Northern tribes had folks go to the Canadian residential school system as well. And so there are many reports, and that was part of a truth and reconciliation process in Canada, but this new report on just just sort of how violent and horrendous forced assimilation was. Again, it's a new report. I think there are a number of folks who are somewhat critical of the report. They they don't lean into all the Indigenous scholarship about these issues. I, hmm. I have a feeling that will come later. The report itself is pretty extensive. It gives a real guideline to what might come next in terms of really thinking about measuring the impact of the system and this forced assimilation that, you know, these schools just 
sort of like Canada, they existed up through the 1970s and 80s, you know, so it's not, right. you know, a deep distant past from 1917. The Yeah, it's crazy the, to think that, you know, uh, so many people alive today who were a part of that. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, yeah, I would say I would re- recommend that, that work. And yeah, sun, uh, pay attention to Sunlight Media Collective. They, they have a lot of great videos in terms of the current issues and in main uh, sort of Wabanaki uh, relations, for sure. Great. All right. Well, thanks so much, Darren Ranko. Thanks for joining us. Hopefully we will speak with you again soon. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. Always good to chat with you, Ian. Appreciate it. That's our show. Follow us, rate and review us on your favorite streaming platform to help the Mainly fandom grow ever larger. Join us again as we speak with the Deputy Director of the Maine Historical Society about two centuries of costume, attire, and swag, as featured in the special exhibit, Northern Threads. That's next time on Mainly History.